what's good, Internet? It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode number 35 of Life Harvester Radio. Guest this month is my friend Sarah Elaine Smith, author of the novel Mary Lou is Everywhere, which is fucking phenomenal. I literally read it in one sitting, um, and you should, you should read it. Uh, we didn't talk about the novel very much. During this interview, we talked about writing process and stuff, which I think it's a very good conversation. Sarah is super smart. I love the way she describes her feelings and also how she... She's just... She's a trained poet. She's good with language, all right? That's what I'm trying to say. Me, not so much, uh, apparently. You know what I mean? This is fucking obvious at this point. What I'm trying to say is we don't talk about the book, so I've included some reviews in the show notes you can click on them and read them but regardless you should buy the book it's very good i've also included a link to her writing class that we talk about at the end of the episode sign up for that if you want to write a novel and while we're signing up for stuff sign up for my patreon it's not that expensive you get stuff in the mail uh the newsletters if you don't have the money you can get them for free over email or at a bunch of different stores in a bunch of different cities i'll include links to that stuff too And that's it. We're running out of time on this intro, and I just want to get to the conversation with Sarah. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoyed having it. Thank you. You grew up in rural Pennsylvania? Yeah, I did. I grew up in Greene County, which is like, I have this whole sort of like Michigan hand mitten thing that I yeah, can yeah, do yeah. for you to show you West Virginia. Yeah, it's right in the corner of the state all the way down by like the um, the beginning of the Mason-Dixon line. So if West Virginia is a hand making the loser symbol, exactly. you're like in the... The, the crotch of the crotch L. crotch of the L. Exactly. Okay. That's right. Um, and it's like extremely, extremely rural and yeah. all of the things that go along with that. Like, um, you know, at the end of the road where I grew up, there's a sign that says, prepare to meet thy God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just like get ready. Like a know? homemade sign? No, no. It looks manufactured. It looks like there are more. Like one of those like heaven it. and hell uh billboards that you see yeah that kind of style yeah exactly but it's just like it's the size that like a politicians oh shit yeah (laughs) yeah and that's how close it is to the ground too it looks exactly like one of those except it has an open bible and it says prepare to meet thy god and it's just been there since you were a kid forever wow yeah it's still there um and so yeah, Green County is like that. And then there are also everyone, my parents and like all of their friends moved there to live off the land. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, all of that. So Whoa. yeah, there's this two, these like two not very comfortably interacting communities. Yeah. And I- Where are your parents up, from? They're, so my dad is from Storm Lake, Iowa. And okay. my mom is from um, Sydney, Ohio. But they met here in Pittsburgh in the 70s. And they were like hippies and they were like, let's go back to the land kind of stuff. Kind of. My dad does not agree with my characterization of him as a hippie because, you know, well, I don't know. I don't know exactly why, but um, he sort of objects to that 
classification. But I mean, ostensibly, yeah, like they go out to the country, they get this, you know, this like big plot of land and a farmhouse and they find all of these other people who are like, let's do a cooperative food buy so that we could all get our brown rice and our, Is it? Are they educated? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad, um, both of my parents have postgraduate degrees. No shit. Yeah. 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 And for both of them, um, at least my sense of it is that they were both coming from pretty similar family, like super working class, like hard times kind of situations. And they Mm -hmm. both in the course of their lives, you know, became the first people in their families to get that kind of education. Sure. You know, and so that's, that's, yeah, it's a weird, it's a lot of stuff in motion in my take anyway on Green County um, because of all of these social layers and all of these like, you know, like elements of it, and which is probably partially responsible for some of the stuff in the way my book, the way that it plays out sort of dramatizes, Yeah, you know, some of those weird intersections. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's an interesting uh like sense of conflict like i think irl it's maybe interesting is like um reduces degrees of violence that are occurring on behalf of both sort of demographics yeah but from a like a fiction perspective it's like an interesting conflict the conflict between like an educated elite who are returning to the country for some Mm -hmm. like pastoral uh utopian vision versus like people that are just sort of stuck there right yeah it makes a big difference whether someone is like really choosing to be where they are you know and that's something that i find really interesting about a lot of rural places actually and about living in the country in general just because like there is something really great about it and there's also something really difficult and isolating and you know, it's it's not just like a sort of beautiful experience to give yourself. Right. Um, and I feel like that has come up a lot um, in a lot of the places I've gone to in the last year, like out in the desert. Also, like the, the, the Mojave is this like place for white people to go get weird. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. But it's also like the place for people who are kind of, I don't know, in a difficult position. Um, it's like... One of those places, oh, honey, it's one of those places where you don't have to work that hard to heat a house year round. And right. so it's like an okay place to be if you're in some kind of difficult straits. And like, yeah, it's almost like the the conflict of there being like college kids and townies or. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I remember when I first was. um becoming aware of like kind of like gentrification patterns in New York city. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was talking to like some family member of mine from Queens about, Oh, like sort of gentrification being fucked up. Yeah. And she was like, well, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like, um, what's this neighborhood? Richmond Hill used to be, uh, like all Irish and Italian and it's black now. And so what's that? What's that about? You know, like that's a neighborhood (laughs) changing. Like, are you defending those Irish and Italians? Like, and I, and I didn't have a snappy answer. You know, I was just kind of like, oh, it's something to think about. I I know I disagree with you, but I don't know why. Yeah. And I thought about it. And what I realized was that the 
Irish and Italian communities left Richmond Hill mm-hmm. on purpose uh, to go to the suburbs to get out of the city because they had achieved class ascendance. Right. And that the black population that was there currently that was being displaced by gentrification were leaving uh, because they were continuing to have their agency and where they lived removed by structural inequalities. Yeah. And, and I think that agency is like, such an important distinguishing characteristic where it's like, yeah, being in the country, if you are like trying to just like utilize or like achieve some vision Mm -hmm. is tight. Being there because you're like a sixth generation coal miner or whatever is like maybe a little different experience. As a kid, did you go to school or were you homeschooled? Oh, I went to school. Was there like, was there... An issue, like, was there conflict with your classmates between, like, back-to-the-land kids and uh, sort of, like, locals or whatever? Yeah, I kind of perceived it, although sometimes now I wonder where I was getting it from. You know what I mean? Because, Uh like, I don't think it was actually that much on the level of, like, me and everyone else in school. I think a lot of that comes from other adults more than anything, you know, like the way that your friend's parents will like sort of say something to you or I don't know, like it's so weird the way that you take information in when you're a kid because you kind of can't remember it because you don't have anything to compare it to. And it just seems like, well, that's what's true, I guess. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, And so it's really strange to try to figure that out. But I definitely think that um, you know, I, I definitely remember some conflicts like more than anything else, like around, um, like using words, like feeling like, um, I don't know, like I always felt like I just had access to words, uh-huh. you know, I had access to words and I didn't feel like there was anything really like particular between me and saying whatever word I would want to say. And then sometimes around other kids, I remember once overhearing um, one of my friend's parents say to my parents, you can't let her talk like that. She's not going to have any friends, which is like devastating, right? Yeah. Um, And so I guess like where I'm going with this, it sort of has to do, I think, also with the difference between feeling like you're choosing to be where you are versus not, like this feeling of um, having access to or like the privilege to say things Mm -hmm. felt like a real conflict. And it was really kind of like heartbreaking to me at the time because I remember hearing that and thinking, I don't understand like I'm just talking. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm not trying to like... You know what I mean? And so it's like, that's actually something that has stuck with me all the way through to right now. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a part of my, my like concern. It's, it's strange because some of this, I think makes me a more considerate and empathetic person about Mm -hmm. how other people are affected by my presence wherever I am. And some of it I think is really kind of caustic and it still lives in me as like a, desire to just like apologize for my existence you know yeah so that's like a really that that's that's the kind of thing that 
I don't necessarily think I sat down with this agenda of trying to reconcile that by writing sure. a book, but that's what's like always kind of churning, you know, yeah. in the back of my mind about things. Absolutely. I remember having an argument when I was in college. I like didn't finish college and it was not really for me. And like I find academic writing pretty alienating a mm -hmm. lot of the time. And it's like my own hangups largely. Mm -hmm. But this person was like talking about how like you have to like uh, it was like inherently alienating to working class people like Foucault or something was inherently alienating to working class people. And I was kind of like, that's that seems fucked up to me. Yeah. Like to assume that a working class person can't understand Foucault and like not that like you can't use simpler sentences or whatever to talk to people with less education but I think when you get into something like and I don't know if this is necessarily an analog to you like just wanting to express yourself as a child but like when you get into like um, like philosophical inquiry or something mm -hmm. right like you need a lexicon to describe phenomena within the thing you're talking about and I was I was pretty drunk I think and I was just like mad at this college party with this this jerk that like, I just didn't like and I was just like I don't I go to the mechanic and I don't know what the fuck he's talking about with my car <laughs> but I don't think that's alienating like and you would never say the mechanic is alienating to working class right. people but it's like a specific language that you need to talk about a specific set of things and people that want to learn that language learn it and people that don't look for uh, like a mechanic like the mechanic is like my Virgil that like yeah you know, it's like it he's my Sherpa through, for my car. Yeah. Yeah. The world of like air compressors and yeah. shit you don't understand. Whatever. Yeah. The alternator or whatever. Like <laughs> I know what those things are now. Right. But like as a 19 year old, I had no clue. And, and I feel like the, the sense that I understand why access to education is a class issue. And mm -hmm. I understand why like speaking in certain ways is like perceived to be alienating and I want to I, I I've been struggling with how do you hold that but also say like but that none of this is inherent like a, a person some of the people that I know with the biggest most comprehensive vocabularies who are the most articulate speakers who uh, so succinctly choose the right words to describe every single thing they're feeling or trying to communicate have the least education or come from some of the poorest backgrounds or whatever. And oh, so yeah. it's like, I don't think there's actually, that's just a set that's, yeah, it's a thing that I don't, I don't know how to reconcile myself. Yeah. No, I, I, I think about this stuff a lot. I mean, just because I don't know, there's a lot going on in that. And I think one thing that's going on is just like, um, to me, at least where I'm at with this now is like, you know what? I'm just going to say some shit. I'm yeah. so fucking tired of thinking about it and trying to like limit its, um, its like effect on everybody around me. I've just gotten kind of like exhausted with trying to play out all of those things. Yeah, for sure. And like in a way, I think that that makes me more eloquent than like I could have been with all of my charts and my like concern about it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I also think that this is part of why being a writer makes sense to me mm -hmm. um, because being a writer is like deferring your immediacy with other people as much as possible. You know Whoa. what I mean? Like yeah, I really I know what you mean. Yeah, I get to sit there and be like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't mean that. I don't. No, 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 no. I don't like that. I don't like where that 
like inflection goes, I'm going to walk that back and change it. And like, this is part of what's been so fascinating and terrifying about the last few months of like having people read my book is that now it's sort of like the spell of that has ended. Right. I mean, it's, it's in place. Yeah. It's, uh, what is it? Static. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it is going to continue to be whatever it is. And all of the, the dynamic stuff that happens comes from other people reading it. And that's the part that I'm like, well, that's why I got into the written word in the first place was to like work with something that I could, you know, like make changes to or like refine until it did what I wanted it yeah. or hoped it would do. And now... I'm in the position of like giving readings and doing events where it's like, this is like the total opposite of that. And I find it honestly like pretty scary sometimes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. For sure. Did you, were you writing when you were young? I was, but I was doing a lot of everything when I was a kiddo. Like I, um, I was definitely into like playing music drawing like just doing all of like the the kid arts you sure, know the yeah. whole complement of like shit that you get to do as a kid when you um, say kid you mean like under 10 you mean an adolescent I, under 10 okay yeah and like um yeah oh i do remember i wrote a lot of plays with my best friend bridget and cool. i these plays were so absurd and amazing like i remember a lot of them took place underwater um we would write a new play every week and stage it for my parents, like put up a curtain, mm-hmm. you know, do that whole thing. And all that I remember about one of them is that like the the two characters were like two evil underwater creatures. But one of them had a huge pink crayon and was going to like make the other one pink and then like make it happy because it was a happy color. I'm like, huh? what? an amazing all of that is so amazing to me yeah um and i loved doing that so much you know that was that was like a huge part of our activity together was to write these weird plays huh cool yeah so that's probably where it really comes from for me um i mean i think i wrote but i don't think it was like fun the way that that was fun yeah did you read a lot as a kid oh my god Holy shit, yes. What was your first shit where you were like, this is my shit? Like, and like, I mean, like, things resonated with me as a kid for sure, but I think when I read, like, um, like this dude Lloyd Alexander who wrote these, this, oh, uh, what's the quintuple mm. of uh, fantasy novels <laughs> for children, where I was like, I, I felt like, it wasn't something like my parents read me stuff that they liked, uh-huh. but it was like kind of a thing that was like, it belonged to me Yeah. in this way where I was like, this is, and coincidentally he translated a bunch of like, um, starter existentialism. So then when I was like 13, <laughs> I ended up reading his like Sartre translation. He was like ready shit. for you. I've been waiting for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, I really liked, um, it depends, I guess on how early I'm thinking here. I really liked this series called Benicula. It was about oh, You remember Benicula? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought those books were so perfect. The celery stalks at midnight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I love that there was like something 
like occult and strange about it and also something that's really just like sweet and endearing like super sweet characters yeah and also like a mystery element you know yeah 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 that was that was probably my first i remember like there because there were a bunch of those books yeah there was like three or four of them yeah and i remember the excitement of being like i got another one got a new one yeah yeah um and i think i even remember like looking up the author you know, being like, who is this? Who wrote this? Like, what what can I know about them? Um, which was probably the first time that my interest in the book extended into, like, right. who wrote this? Yeah, what well, can I, how can I do this? Yeah. Like, how can I, I want to know more about this whole world. This whole thing. Yeah, how did this even happen? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Cool. And did you, did you continue to read, like, all through your youth oh yeah like as a teen as an adolescent yeah all the time all about it all about it i mean and so i'm an only child and Mm -hmm. i think that's part of it too like being an only child in this like 250 acre plot of land oh jesus yeah yeah (laughs) um and like i i had friends who lived close by but it still took like somebody with a car to get you together you know Uh and so there was just like a lot I was alone a lot as a kid. And yeah. so reading is it reading kind of felt like um like a place to me. You know what I mean? Like not not like it's it's a book, it's an object, but it was a place. Right. That was sort of behind everything that's here in the world. Uh-huh. And I went to that place behind this place like all the time and sort of started to feel like I could do that just in my head. Yeah. You know, even when I was at school or whatever um and like that feeling has always been really comforting to me yeah for sure yeah and as you got older like i guess like i'm wondering when you started taking writing seriously like yeah i had um a high school english teacher who my book is actually dedicated to her Um, she was at the she was yeah the book release yeah yeah she was. that's really sweet yeah she's the best and she was a really amazing teacher um like for all kinds of reasons that don't even necessarily have to do with like here's how to use words or here's how to write but more right. like um i was just kind of like a, a raw nerve of a person yeah like a lot of people are in high school and like i ate lunch in her classroom instead of in the cafeteria for years Whoa. yeah so she's one of those like patron saint type yeah. teachers um were there other kids that ate lunch in there was yes. it like a little crew that hung out in there okay yeah yeah there was a little crew of like the literary magazine staff and like the newspaper staff and we always uh-huh. had some kind of ostensibly good enough reason to be there like oh we're working on the layout for the new issue of the paper but actually we're watching vh1 on the like in class like television (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. you know what i mean and like we're we're like kind of goofing off and we're like a, a, a little bit insulated from the social world of our high school and so yeah that that was important crucial for me and i i imagine for a lot of other people yeah um but she was just really encouraging. And she said to me, like, if you want to do this, you can do it. I'm just telling you. Right. Whatever whatever you want in this world, you can you can do this. Whoa. Yeah. That's a huge thing to tell someone. Yeah. That's young and maybe like in a place 
where like options don't seem that available. Yeah. Potentially, right? Totally. And like, I don't know, just, um, I, yeah, she would just point out what was really great about everything I wrote. That was sort of her teaching style is like, look at how great this is. Look at how great this is. Like, yeah. do you see what you're doing here? You know, yeah. one of those things. Um, and there was something about that that made me consider it maybe in a way that I hadn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. Um, but I guess like at a certain point, I think I was pretty much destined like heading toward making stuff you know from from a pretty early age and it just wasn't clear to me what that would be exactly yeah you know like i had the disposition more than anything else of somebody who likes to sit with a a thing that you're trying to make and like try to listen to it Uh uh-huh and so it wouldn't even matter to me so much like whether that was writing or doing something else sure yeah, yeah, drawing or music or whatever. Like yeah, the exactly. kid arts, like you yeah. called it. That's a really good name for that. Thanks. <laughs> Trifecta, too. Growler. Growler, hi. Um, yeah, she heard us talking about vampire pets. And oh, was my like, God. I got to get in on this conversation. Yeah. Um, so you were on the literary magazine? I was the editor of that shit. Oh, wow. My friend Maya, who was on the show a few months ago, who did that... Um, the um like intro to witchcraft book oh yeah that i think i showed you when it came out she was the editor of my high school literary Mm -hmm. magazine and we um that's how we met she and i yeah uh i was turning in real bad stuff (laughs) but like it's high school that's 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 the way it's what they're for that's what they're for that's what they're all about yeah Yeah. i um i was i was the editor of the literary magazine what was it called still life ours was called opus Opus. Oh man, that's really good. Yeah. That's really good. Still life. Still life. It. Yeah, it was it was a great it was a great project. And um one of my one of my best friends still, who I'm still really close with, yeah. was the art editor. And he and I basically I wish I had a copy of this here that I could show you. If you look at the table of contents, it's just my name and his name. <laughs> you know what I mean? We we publish stuff by other people. Right. But we mostly published our own stuff. Yeah, just again and yeah. Well, we were like, this is the highest quality work that we have before us. Like, who are we to decide not to, you yeah. know, which is just like, <laughs> or also we took a lot of photographs together. Um, that was like a hobby. I don't know if a hobby is the right word. It was a way of spending time together where we would drive around and look at at stuff and take pictures like look for things to take pictures of yeah you know yeah for sure yeah and so like we did a lot of that and a lot of i actually i mean a lot of the reason that we appeared in our own table of contents so much was that we needed more like photographs to balance out a spread or something and we were like oh look we just have to take them yeah we just went out and you know went to some like burned down bank in Littleton, West Virginia and took a bunch of pictures inside and here they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was really great. And it was great too, because, um, we just like taught ourselves, learned how to do all of this stuff that you don't really learn how to do unless you just decide you're going to learn how to do it. Right. Yeah, Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Yeah. And um it's like a zine 
Oh yeah, in a lot of ways. Did you do, did did you read zines when you were oh in high god, school? Oh my god, yes, I did the zine thing for a long time. Not actually that long of a time, but feels like, like it a was long time. An in important high time. Yeah. It was an intense time, and I think I learned a lot from zines that I like desperately needed to learn, and I don't think I could have learned anywhere else. Yeah, like, um, and I made I my zine like <laughs> I I reached immediately like what i considered the pinnacle of like zine achievement which was to have it carried by pander zine distro erica erica yeah and um and i was so overjoyed that i immediately became too like afraid to write another issue whoa you know what i mean i do i know exactly what you mean yeah i just it was like too much wow it made me, it was so, it was such a big deal to me. I was so thrilled about it. And then I was like, I have to stop. Gotta be done. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've gotten, I've achieved it. That's all I can yeah. handle. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Which is so How heartbreaking. Did you, where was she from? <laughs> Chicago or something? Uh, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yeah. How did you find out about Panderzine Distro? Oh, God. I don't think I could even. Was it online, do you think? or in It a, was online. In like a fact sheet five. It was online. It was online? I'm yeah. pretty sure I must have found it that way. Um, but yeah. I was like a, a active member of the Pander like board. Hell yeah. The, yeah, back in the day, right? And cool. so, I mean, I still have all of the zines from that time. And I still try, like, every now and then I go, like, peeking through the zine selection at a bookstore here and there. And I just sort of feel like I don't see the kind of zine that I love that I'm really looking for, which is the like, you know, the personal, like the essayistic, like everything's in there, but it's sort of filtered through the human person. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like a real personality driven. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I think about zines a lot, yeah. obviously, because I like spent so much of my adult life doing zines primarily. Yeah. And then also like I'm doing this sort of publishing venture now that's, zine based but is supposed like intentionally divergent from a zine as a form yeah um but yeah i've been thinking i'm yeah no need to um, (laughs) digress too far into that oh no shit what was your zine called the patron saint of small things oh wow which to me today i'm just like barf like i hate titles like that but embarrassing i know it wouldn't be right if it Yeah. yeah exactly um and i had I had done like so many of the like the hallmark zine layout trends of the early aughts in this thing. Like it had a little half page insert that sort of separated like the middle section from the rest. It had like a homemade linoleum print like stamps in parts of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I I hand bound all of them. Like Like on a sewing machine? No, just with like a needle and then embroidery floss that's really annoying right it was oh my god i can't believe like i don't even know how many of these i could have possibly made (laughs) yeah yeah i have uh, this long arm stapler that's sitting on my desk right there is like at this point it's just more like um like when someone that was in the military hangs a saber yeah in their office or whatever like i'm not i'm not ever going to use it again but it's like i I, every time I've moved, it's been in a place of prominence near where I work as like a reminder of where I came from totally. or something. Um, but yeah, fuck, hand binding is so annoying. Oh my God, it really was. And like maybe that contributed to my 
you know, my block, my writer's block about doing another issue because I probably did this thing of like, well, it can't just be that. It has to be even more elaborately handmade the next time or something like that. Yeah. And then you just build a thing where like you create such obstacles to even do the thing that you just don't, it's worth it. It's not worth it to do the thing. Yeah. Um, And then you became interested in getting published by others. Yeah. Perhaps. (laughs) Yeah. Like don't make me encounter like all of the, you know, the specifics of how this gets out in the world. Like let that be completely like hypothetical to me. And um, although I don't think it ever really is totally hypothetical and sometimes I don't know. Like I actually, I think about it every now and then these days that like what I should really do is a zine sort of against all other like kinds of projects I could possibly do. There's something satisfying about that kind of like making a space for what I want to say that's like the same size as it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Instead of being like, okay, well... I wrote a short story and I'm going to send it to these places that publish short stories where it's like, um, I don't know, like with a zine, you make something that's like a container that's just big enough to hold exactly what you want it to hold. Yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah. It's really, it's really sad. It's I like, I have this tendency to move leftovers into smaller Tupperwares (laughs) as we eat more of them that like, we have a roommate now, Becca and I, and Mm -hmm. so like, um, now it actually is functional because she gets a third of the fridge. Yeah. But before, when it was just the two of us sharing like a normal family size fridge, it was unnecessary. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it doesn't... I do all the dishes. I'm not like making a dish for someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't harm... You know, it's just like, it's so satisfying for me Yeah. to not have a like three-quarter empty giant Tupperware full of uh, like quinoa or whatever when I could have like a perfectly sized one. I have so much nice glass Tupperware. Let's put it all in the right size package. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like what you're saying about building a thing to like a vessel to perfectly fit its contain, it's um, what it contains. Yeah. uh, Is so satisfying sounding to me. Yeah. I also think there's a, we're in a moment now. So like, my trajectory with zines was that like I was into punk and then I start. I was like, I have to contribute, but I can't play in a band because I'm not good at it. So like I have to make a zine because that's mm-hmm. the thing that I can do. And then, and I did like ultimately play in a band like a year and a half later. It felt like an eternity, obviously. <laughs> and then I was doing zines and then I was like, got involved in kind of like online zine communities. Yeah. Like I was on um, a... Um, what's it called? Like a email list serve mm-hmm. called zinesters at yahoogroups.com uh-huh. that Erica was on and like a bunch of other people that I thought of as like sort of my zine elders at that yeah, time. Yeah. And then I got into like live journal zine communities. Mm-hmm. And there was a point when the the email list never impacted my making zines. Like I kept making zines, but when live journal came around, it's like I was still communicating with all my friends from zines but much more efficiently and i sort of backed off on the creating the physical stuff mm-hmm. and i you know i still put out zines consistently since i was 14 i'm yeah. 36 but like it kind of slowed down a little bit and then um i did slice harvester or whatever and it was like very exciting but then that ended and it was a couple years 
between Slice Harvester ended in 2014 and I didn't start mm-hmm. uh, five years between Slice Harvester ended and Life Harvester, the newsletter beginning. Yeah. And I feel like the desire to take what I'm doing off the internet as like kind of a response to the way I feel like social media and the internet is like flattening out culture. Yeah. And like it still is available online for people who aren't going to go get a physical copy from a store because I am solipsistic and I think that everyone wants to see what I make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's like, and I've, I've been talking to a lot of friends our age. Like, yeah. Uh, and I do see a lot of this like sort of just like need to have tactile things yeah totally um kind of in the face and also like politics in the world are so scary it's like returning to the forms that we used when we were young and the world was even if it was scary it was scary in different ways and there was like ultimately a greater safety that we just expected it overall because we were didn't have agency over our own lives because we were teens you Mm -hmm. know feels it feels to me like these things all make sense does that make sense oh yeah absolutely i mean I think about that sometimes how like one of the things that I remember finding so incredible about zines is just that I felt like accompanied by them and I didn't feel accompanied. Yeah. Like, um, I, there were not a lot of kids in my high school that I related to in a ton of ways, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I I was lucky because I did have a few good friends who we were like weirdos in the same way. But I remember reading zines and just being like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Other people see this thing also that I see. And that was really important, like incredibly important for someone who's having like the first layer of like feminist realizations. For sure. You know what I mean? And like those those were not things that were being like very widely reinforced as as, like truths Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my high school. And so like stuff like that but then even much more subtle things that i would see like a kinship with and in people's zines like there was something there was something that felt even more precious about them because you kind of had to know where to look for them and you had to know a certain set of things to even find zines like even to get your hands on them was like a slightly active skill or knowledge or like insiderness. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And like, I think about that sometimes and I, I feel like a little bit nostalgic for it actually, how growing up, like, you know, you don't know what, what bands there are unless someone can tell you, or you like, you know where to start looking because what do you have? You have like the back page of spin magazine and right. like MTV and the radio. And you're like, this is what I know about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was, you know, I had like New York City radio mm-hmm. as a kid. So I could hear there was like a, like a pretty deep cut punk show and like a ska show. Uh-huh. That were, you know what I mean? That I listened to in high school where I could like learn about contemporary bands or whatever. Yeah. In a way that um, I can't even imagine like not having access to like whatever the just like cultural dumping ground that New York city is, um, and being able to find out about stuff pre internet. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember having a mixtape that had this one song on it that I loved. And I asked the person who gave it to me, what is this? Because it just had like question marks on the liner notes. And he was like, 
I don't know. I taped it off of the radio from like the college station for West Liberty University. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know? Um, Did you ever figure out what song it yes. was? Yes. Do you know what song it is? Harnessed in Slums by Archers of Loaf. Whoa, cool. But I didn't know. Crucial that... college band. Oh, yeah. Fantastic yeah. song. Still a fave. Yeah. Um, and like, I remember it was maybe, oh, probably like almost 15 years later when I was in a friend's car in Austin. I had just moved there and he was driving us someplace and that came on and I was like, overjoyed you know and yeah. i think that's like not even it's not even possible really to have that experience probably yeah anymore of be like this this song that's sort of shrouded in mystery as to its origins and there's nothing you can do except hope that you encounter it again someday yeah i mean i have an inst- i've had an instrumental song stuck in my head for like two weeks and it's mm-hmm. really the closest to that experience I've ever had because I can't just Google a lyric or whatever. Right, yeah. Um, it's really annoying, I will say. it's not, <laughs> There's nothing like exquisite. There's no exquisite torment. Like, it's just <laughs> fucking annoying. Yeah. Um, but say la vie. And, of course, right now, I can't remember how it sounds. Yeah. Like, it'll come to me at moments when I'm driving or something, and, I, and now I can't recall it at all, so I couldn't, like, um, hum it into this microphone right. and have... Ask my uh, my you know forty podcast listeners to um, <laughs> figure it out. I'll figure it out. Yeah, but, yeah. But um, so you go to high school. You do the literary magazine. Mm-hmm. You're doing zines in high school. I actually don't remember. I think maybe I had started to write stuff for them, but I had not actually taken the step of printing them and copying them. So you put a zine together in college? Yeah, I think it was my freshman year that I like actually made the physical thing. Yeah. Did you go away to school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I came here to, came to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh for um for How far? College. Like three, four hours? Maybe it's like an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. So it's like, it's not that far away, but... It's still away. It's, it's still a away. different world. Yeah. It's a totally different world. And it Pittsburgh was like the big city kind of thing to yeah. me. Um, so... Yeah, it it was a real. I had never, I had never like crossed traffic like with the crosswalk sign as many times in the first week, you know, that I lived here oh, as I had yeah, for yeah, my yeah. whole life. Which is this is the kind of thing. Um, also, I find interesting how like you don't really there are things you don't understand about your experience as a kid until you are in a different situation where it's not the norm. Uh-huh. And then you start to become aware of how particular and kind of strange your assumptions about existence are. Yeah. And I had a lot of that where like, um, you know, like you just, you really do kind of know everybody in a place like Greene County. Like yeah. you really just do. How many, how many people were in your high school? Um, I think my, my class had 76. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. So... You know, I think it was almost like the whole school, which included sixth grade through 12th grade, had like 600 people or something. Yeah, my graduating class in high school was bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's like the amount of stuff that you think you know about other people is pretty extreme. Uh Uh-huh. I don't think that anybody actually knows that much about everyone else, but it's like there aren't other people around to know anything about. And... um, 
it just felt so incredible to me to like see a person and then to think I might not ever see that person again. Yeah. You know, um, or to start to like enjoy the benefit of like not feeling like you're going to be seen and recognized every time you leave your house. Sure. You know what I mean? Like I used to have this really intense self-consciousness about how I looked when I left the house because, well, I think everyone kind of has it, but I mean, excessive. And then I realized at some point when I lived here that like, I might not see anyone I know at the grocery store. Maybe I don't have to really worry that much. I don't have to like stress about who I'm going to be right now, you know, because I'm not, I'm not like entering a world of people who have a, a whole lot of um, past ideas about who I am and what I'm supposed to be like. You yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. So that, that was pretty crazy. Um, and did you, did you study writing? I did. Cool. I studied writing. I studied jazz music. No which, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This you is play, like a what is your, about me, trombone. You play trombone. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. It, I, I, um, that was something, those were the two very serious, like, you know, directions that I was going in. When I went to college, I picked a place where I could study writing or music. Like I hadn't really chosen one yet, but I wanted to be able to choose between the two of them. Um, so yeah, I studied, I was a jazz music minor. No shit. Yeah. So I did that. And I mean, the writing thing, um, what's your favorite trombone record? Oh God. I don't really think I have one. I, like I just, I feel like I have my like knowledge of like classic impulse records uh-huh. is pretty, uh, like on the lower end of extensive. Uh-huh. Like I don't know who everyone, like who all the studio musicians are, yeah, and the yeah. big names, and I can't think of like a sick trombonist off the top yeah, of my head. The, That's it's, why it's an interesting instrument because it doesn't have as much of that like persona driven mastery you know um i mean there are a few like incredible trombone players like jj johnson and but i like for whatever reason never really gravitated to any of the like landmark trombone players i really liked al gray a lot who played in like the count basie band Uh um, because ella fitzgerald was like a big obsession of mine in high school and he was in that, you know, in a lot of those records. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing about trombone players. They don't necessarily have this sort of like, I don't know, like, um, like diva status. Yeah. And I just think of it as more of like a swing instrument and less mm-hmm. like I don't, I've seen, I know there's a trombone or two in the Sunra Orchestra, for instance, yeah, yeah. but like. I've seen like various iterations of the art ensemble of Chicago or whatever a few mm-hmm. times in my life. And like, I can't recall there being a trombone in any of those kind of jazz structures. You yeah. Know, like the, in like a more free jazz context. It's interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. My, my favorite individual, like just trombone player straight up is Fred Wesley, who played in the, like the JBs. And, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, for He's sure. amazing. And his style is like, something that I really aspire to, which is like, it, he doesn't try to take away any of the sort of overdrive of a trombone. Like right. a trombone can sound kind of splatty and rude. And initially, I think the way I was taught, it was like, sort of like, okay, we're going to make this sound more like the human voice and make it sound smoother and yeah. more lyrical. And 
um, we're going to try to work against these sort of sloppier tendencies of the instrument. Uh-huh. But his strategy is just like, fuck that, fuck it. Yeah. Like complete overdrive of all of the, the sonic Whoa. qualities. And like, um, I think it's amazing. And I, I was lucky enough to get to study with him very briefly. In high school, I did all of the honors band, every like honors band thing you can possibly imagine sure. I did. And one of them was here in Pittsburgh and he was the like he was the the guest trombone instructor oh yeah which was pretty amazing um and I just remember like hearing him play in this auditorium of some random like suburban Pittsburgh high school where um I don't know like where I could sort of start to see how what he was doing the the sort of like aggressive edges of this sound made it carry so much farther with so much more like integrity like it took up more space it took up more space and like the space that it took up made sense when you were like listening in the auditorium and he didn't have any kind of mic on him whatever it was like he was his own microphone sure somehow and like Hearing him play up up close, it didn't have that quality. It sort of reminds me of like stage makeup, you know, like if you look at stage makeup up close, it doesn't look like the real thing. It right, looks but like, from... Yeah, but it reads in a different way from farther away. And that was sort of what his playing was like. And I just thought like, that's really, I don't know. It's just oh, really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. He's an incredible, incredible guy. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So you study trombone and... and writing what kind of writing are you doing in college in college i was doing primarily poetry i think um but they had us write everything you couldn't like declare yourself a specialist um but poetry is what i felt like the most identified with um and then of course writing like uh like unreadable papers you know (laughs) (laughs) like i don't know how how i got away with any of the papers i wrote i feel like they were all so absurdly bad just because i did a lot of stuff the night before it was due right i remember one night writing three papers in one night that were due the next day and i just think like why yeah it can't be good there's no way yeah there's no way it's good um but yeah and so (laughs) Um, mostly poetry, but I do remember taking a short fiction workshop and, um, having to write a short story for the first time and just feeling like this is the most uncomfortable feeling I've ever had in my life. Yeah. sucks. Yeah. I contemplated somehow calling the professor in the middle of the night, the day before I was supposed to turn in a story and just say like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I quit. I quit. I can't do it. Like I had these characters and I had taken them up to a point where I didn't know what was going to happen to them next. And it just felt so awful that I was like, I'll drop out of school, you know, I'll disappear. Yeah. I'll go on the run. Like, I just, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can get from this moment to the next moment. And then there's a large space in between, (laughs) but now you teach people how to do that. Yes. Now I teach people how to do that. Well, mainly because, um, I, try to make my my like my deal as a teacher to just say like you're right it does feel that awful yeah that's correct you know like and that's that's not it going wrong that's not you doing a bad job that's just how it feels it just feels bad yeah 
Or like it doesn't even necessarily, maybe after enough time, it doesn't feel bad. Right. But it's not comfortable. Sure. You know what I mean? Um, and like, there's just nothing at a certain point, there's nothing left to do except maybe make a mistake. Right. I think that's why it's so painful. People are scared to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're writing poetry and some short fiction. And then what do you do after college? Do you after, go to more school? Um, not right away, but I did. I, I got this kind of weird job here where I was like a, an artist in residence for the cyber school in Beaver <sighs> County. I know this sentence is like a series of suitcases that like I unfold with more and more weird things in them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I, I did this thing where I would go and teach poetry to like middle school classes in Beaver County, but it wasn't like um, ever this regular thing of like you show up on this day and you work with this group of, of kids. It was more like this school wants you to come talk to all of their sixth graders for one day. This school wants you to come teach their fifth graders through their seventh graders like one hour a day for three weeks. Right. And this, you know, so it was completely. It's all. Yeah. And you have to just lesson plan around that. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. It's crazy. It's like such a funny thing, such a funny job to think about now, yeah. like driving around Beaver County in my Hyundai Elantra listening to Dipset, rolling up, <laughs> rolling up to like a middle school with my, you know, my like sort of like hastily hatched idea about how to teach poetry to middle school students that day. Yeah. You know? Whoa. Yeah. So I did that for a year and um, that was pretty great. Sure. Yeah. It, it was sounds pretty fantastic. Great. Yeah. If it's like stressful and annoying. Yeah, it was a lot of driving, and driving used to be terrifying to me, and that was probably the worst part of it, yeah. oddly enough, which wouldn't bother me anymore. But um, yeah, it was great because, uh, like, there's really something that I just I like about middle school students. I think they're just brilliant, and I I get why other teachers teachers like often groan when they talk about middle school and I'm like it's just because they're smarter than you and you're like pissed about it you know I think also I've, <laughs> I've taught middle school after school programs mm -hmm. um, and I think it's also because we didn't have to be there day in day out yes like I think with middle school getting to drop in and be like an, a, a diversion yes and also like the cool other adult yes or whatever where like you are like a, not the real teacher or whatever yeah. I think you get a little more leeway from the like potential cruelty of the adolescent. But I agree with you. I love teaching writing to middle schoolers. Yeah. I think it's one of my, I feel like children younger than that, I'm bad at it. Like I don't know how to do pedagogy to a six year old or whatever. Yeah. And then like when you start getting a little older than that, I just feel like um, I'm too um, much of like an inherent bully to not judge kids that aren't cool. Whereas like <laughs> a 12 or 13 year old is just never cool. So I like don't assume they're going to be cool, but like a 15 year old that's not cool. That's their fault. Yeah. And I hate nerds. Yeah. Like, I just don't like doing Totally. And maybe it's contagious. Yeah. So I don't want don't that. Want... I don't want it like, yeah. Cause I'm going to have empathy for them if I'm around them enough. And then it's like, what am I going to watch an episode of Dr. Who to see if it's. Yeah. You're no, going to get some nerd stink on you. Yeah. And... I don't want that. Yeah. 
No, it's it's interesting. Like high school students, because I, I did it very occasionally. They asked me to do something with a high school class, and high school students had this real, like watchful, quiet about them. Uh huh. You know where they just wouldn't engage, and I thought like, that's fine, but I know it's happening. I know right. it's in there. And I know you're just not going to bring it out right now. Yeah. Like, it's too scary for you to bring it out. And I, I appreciate that. But that limits what I can, like, what we can do right now. Right. Um, but with middle school students, they were just like, I don't know. Like, there's really not a lot keeping them from saying something that is maybe hard to say, you know? And and it's, yeah. And it's not like in this sort of like childlike way it's just like the immediacy of all of the sensations is so great that it's probably maybe a little bit of a relief to say it rather than like feeling safe to keep it to yourself sure sure you sure, know what yeah. i mean it's like there's so much He's going like on it. yeah something has to happen with it and yeah you gotta just yeah get it get it out i think a lot i've like thought a lot about singing in hardcore bands and how it's like writing songs about stuff that was making me mad uh-huh. and then screaming about it. Like there's like the catharsis, like the physical catharsis of like that kind of exertion, but also about how I was literally putting it outside my body. Yeah. And like that act of just like, cause I have always written, but then I also started being in bands when I was a little older and it's like that act of externalizing or like making a zine where I make 300 copies and I'm just like, trying to sell them outside the supermarket or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, I'm taking this stuff that I hate and I'm putting it out. I'm getting yeah. rid of it. Yeah. I'm like, there's a little, there's like, um, as a Jew, I feel like there's like a, kind of element of how I process emotions where it's like, this is re- <laughs> revolting to me and I need to just tuh, spit, yeah. it, spit it away from me. Totally. Leave it in the gutter. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's so funny. It reminds me of how, like, they would always write these amazing poems and then just, like, leave them. Yeah. You know? Like, they would just, like, the bell would ring, everyone would pack up their stuff, and they would just walk out and leave these amazing poems on every desk. And I just thought, like, what? But, of course, it's because that's not what it's about. Yeah. You know? And they don't really, like, necessarily, a lot of them, I guess, don't have, like, a thing that they want that to do for them and so it's done it did what it needed to do and now it's time for something else and like i'll give you some of the teen zines i have from when i taught zine classes in austin but they're amazing yeah this one girl after like i explained what a zine was and also they just like they just like brutally read me like i was like a zine is like tumblr but you can hold it and they were like Yo, Tumblr is for old people, first of all. And second of all, we all look at the internet on our phones. So we already can hold it. Like this thing <laughs> that, you're, that you're telling us to make sounds dumb. And I was just like, no, it's, I swear to God, it's cool. And like, eventually I broke it yeah. down. They're like, it is cool. Like we get to make a thing. It's like a little book. Yeah. And that seems real. It seems more real than if I write in a notebook just because you photocopied it. And then this girl was like, she's like 12 or 13. She was like, yo, so are you saying I can make a zine about anything I like? Mm-hmm like anything in the world that I like. And I was like, literally a zine can be about anything. And she was like, I can make a zine about fighting girls I don't like. And I was like, you could. Yeah. You definitely could. And she ended up writing half a zine about fighting girls she don't like. And then realizing that if she makes more than 15 copies of that, then some of them might see it and deciding to do a different zine. 
Um, which like yeah. I appreciate. Like I kind of coached her to that point because I didn't want to be in a position where I encouraged <laughs> a twelve-year-old to do something harmful, like ultimately harmful to them. But I also didn't want to stifle her initial impulse. Yeah. Uh, but then she just didn't care about any of the old. She was just like, oh, I'm not making this. This is garbage to me. Yeah. So insane. She put yeah. months of work into it. Totally. So what did you do after that? So after that, I went to grad school for the first time, um, which like partway through that job, I was like, this job is great, but it's also a racket. Yeah. Because I didn't have health insurance. They were like having me work 39 and a half hours a week. And ooh, you know what ooh, I mean? That kind yeah. of thing. Um, and so I applied to grad school for poetry and I got into the Michener Center for Writers in Austin nice. and that's where I went. And so like I left here and I moved to Texas, which was like the most different place that I could, you know, try Austin to end is up so in. so different. It's so different. Also weirdly similar to Pittsburgh though. Yeah, in, totally. In some strange ways. Yeah. It's a, it's like a similar size city, I think. Yeah. And that's the thing that always sort of seems the same to me that like it feels like you can know Austin you can kind of basically know if you know like enough bouncers and enough like you know like different sort of trades of people you're like I got this yeah I get this yeah 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 and and Pittsburgh kind of feels like that to me too where it's like no no no, I got it I got it for sure yeah um so yeah I went there and you know, became like a professional student of poetry. Yeah, cool. Yeah, which is was... that where you published your chapbook? Um, that kind of I that was like a few years after. Okay. Um, that was like that came out in 2012, I think, and I started there in 2006. So, um, yeah, it took it took a long time. Sure. To get all of that shit that shit together, but um, yeah, that was like a really. Oh, gosh. Like, one of the main things that sticks out to me about that time now is that my drinking got really bad. Like, first got really fun and then got really bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, fun for, like, three months and then really bad for, like, the rest of the time. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's, like, yeah. I mean, I talk so much on this podcast and, like, in my newsletters and in my book about not drinking. Mm-hmm. Um it's like, and I feel like we're like almost exactly the same age. Like I'm mm-hmm. 36. You just turned 36. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, And I feel like, yeah, like 2006 or seven, there was like, maybe I just hit an age. It's like early 20s where I'm like, oh, I can really commit to this. Yeah. Yeah. I can do what I want. Yeah. I have a little bit like whatever the last barrier was that you know i could have imagined between me and doing this like drinking the way that i want to drink which just sort of gone yeah you know and like also austin is a fucking party city you know yeah it's like a place where if you want to surround yourself with people who are like yeah this is totally normal drinking like this is totally cool it's totally fine like you can definitely do that you know the older I get, the more I think everywhere is that place. Yeah, that's true. Like, not to say that Austin is not a party culture. Like, I know what you mean. But as you're describing, I moved there as a non-drinker. Yeah. Um, and so I was, like, kind of acutely aware of how drinking-oriented it was. But I also feel like Pittsburgh feels like that to me sometimes. Yeah, true. New York felt like that to me. New true. Orleans obviously feels like that. 
Chicago seems like that, but in a little different way where it's like everyone's drinking because they're uh, like holed up in their apartments half the year because it's too cold. Like any city I can imagine or town or, you know what I mean? Like definitely. Oh, it's sort of the same thing with professions where people, whatever profession, they're like, well, you know, you know, newspaper people, you know how they drink or like, you know, which is true or like, it's all true. Yeah. You know, you know, shrimp boat captains, gosh, they really put it away. It's like, doesn't even matter. Um, which I guess is just like, if you're looking for the people to party with, you'll, you'll find, find them, them. wherever yeah, you are. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, you know, it's probably not totally accurate for me to sum up my time there to like make that the first thing I mention about it. Because a lot of other amazing stuff happened there too, and those things don't necessarily just like blot each other out. But yeah, but if that's what you remember, that's also what you're like. Yeah. If that's your takeaway ten yeah. years later, then that's that's real. Totally, yeah. And and that was like the place where I was just like, okay, like I remember moving to Texas and being so delighted by the fact that like you could buy alcohol in like convenience stores and gas stations. That I decided, like, I'm just going to buy a bottle of cheap champagne and keep it in my refrigerator so I can have a bottle of cheap champagne whenever I want, which just sounds like such a horrible idea to me now. But at the time, it was also sort of, like, for me, filtered through this idea of, like, celebratory, like, joie de vivre kind of, yeah, for like, sure. life, you know. Um, and so that's really, that's that's what... <laughs> that sort of characterizes like my whole time in Austin. Um, yeah. But also feeling like totally crushing anxiety. Um, and like, which is funny because it's like I kept on moving into like a context. I remember feeling in high school, like I feel pretty alone and weird now, but when I go to college, I'll find the other people who are like me mm-hmm. and then getting there and being like, okay, this is definitely more people that I relate to, but I still feel really alienated and yeah. self-conscious and strange. And so, and it's almost like, um, like the, the anxiety get more and more acute as I went to these more and more specific places to look for people like me. And so like, okay, I'm a poetry grad student here are all of these other people who love writing and take it seriously the way that I do. And I'm still not. Yeah. And I hate being art. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like so anxious about how I'm coming across and like how I'm doing at this whole performance of, of being myself and like feeling really kind of um, like I'm not being a very convincing version of myself, which is the kind of thing that probably I imagine like actually recently I saw a friend that I knew around that time and she was sort of surprised I think to hear me talk about those years like this it didn't really square with her her, experience yeah yeah and like and I appreciated that I appreciated that because I think she was also kind of telling me like you know you can lighten up a little bit on yourself dude like you know like there there's there's more there's more there's more to say about you than just this like um this like depression and anxiety and fear and right and and she's right and i do appreciate that but i also think that just sort of speaks to how 
much of that, at least I can keep under the surface. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's got to take her liver pill. The oh, cat, no. she knows it's time. She knows it's time. She's bugging me for her liver pill. Yeah. She loves it. Uh, yeah, she loves the pill pocket. Sometimes yeah. she'll eat them and leave the pill. around the pill. Yeah, good. Oh, Thank she did you. it. Excellent. Um, that's why she was screaming. Yeah. But yeah, I've had similar experiences where I was like, times in my life where I was at my lowest, feeling my lowest, or like doing my, like my most um, agonized drinking, mm-hmm. where I'll like refer to them as if that's kind of like an objective experience of me. And people that I was with every day in those years or months or whatever will be like, I don't know, you seem fine to me. Yeah. You know? And yeah. it's like, and it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess like part of it is like, yeah, we do have this ability to just like keep things below the surface. I remember my dad, when I was in third grade, this teacher, Mrs. Troy, she sucked. I hated her guts. And... My dad came home to parent te- from parent teacher night and he was like expecting it to be terrible because I just talked about how I hated her so much. Uh-huh. And he was really excited because she had no idea I hated her. And he was like so proud of me mm-hmm. that I could hate her without her knowing. And I and I think like he was just like thrilled that I wasn't making my life more difficult and probably didn't hang on that sentiment as hard as I heard it. But yeah. like, as you never know what's going to stick in a kid. Yeah. And I think that was like really foundational for me being like, you have to keep your emotions secret, mm-hmm. you know, like keep, you got to keep your shit together. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I feel like that's like a pretty common experience or like, I don't mean common, like it's banal or whatever. I just mean like people share that experience yeah. of being like, this time was so terrible for me, but I actually was just like partying and seemed like I was a lot of fun. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating stuff because, you know, because because it seemed like that to me, too, at the time. And if you had come up to me and been like, hey, are you dealing with some kind of like crushing self-hatred right now? I would be like, what? No, look at my life. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm stoked. I I'm just puked. I'm doing this coke. Like, everything's great. Yeah. 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 I would have a lot of ways to tell you that it was totally fine. Um because I just don't think I had like any vocabulary for anything else. And I don't think that I had like a way to listen to myself, like listen to my own for sure. physical, how I was registering yeah. being where I was, you know? So that was, that was pretty rough. And, um, I'm actually, I'm going to go back to Austin for the Texas book festival. Oh, hell yeah. I know. I'm so excited. I haven't been back there since I moved away in 2012. 2012. Yeah. Well, so I was there for a long time. And like after school, um, I worked at the Austin Chronicle for a few years and stuck around. So I was there for a pretty good amount of time. Yeah. And also when I left, like, um, when I left, yeah, I don't know. I just... I'll, I'll be really curious about what I remember when I go back there because I know that there's so much content that is not going to come up until I'm at the actual intersection, yeah. until I'm like on Airport Boulevard and I'm like, oh, this is the place. I remember, yeah. you know, this drive through. I remember this like, I don't know. I don't even know what. I don't even know what will be there to remember now. I've been told there's a lot of condos that weren't there before and it's... I mean, I moved there in uh, 
2015 mm-hmm. maybe yeah. I lived there for two years and in the two years that I was there it changed so dramatically because there's like no zoning laws yeah um did you come back here after that I went to Iowa for the Iowa Writers for the Workshop other the other MFA that I MFA. did yeah like was that maniac. also poetry or was that like a fiction fiction thing? cool yeah and I can't really remember how I hatched this plan honestly like it's pretty like when people ask me so like why did you do that I know it doesn't sound right for me to say I don't know but I kind of don't know sure yeah um I kind of I was sort of feeling like stuck in my job and retrospectively I would say stuck in drinking and how awful it was Mm -hmm. um but sort of putting that on my job and on Texas and being like you know I don't have any teaching experience, but if I did, I could get a job doing that and that would fix it. Um, And so I need to go and get another MFA and get teaching experience, which Uh is like, I don't even know what that is. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a weird, I don't know how that, that all was totally logical to me, but it was. And Iowa was the only school I got into. I applied to like five places. Um, and I went there and like, like, oh gosh, if my anxiety and like fear about being around other people was bad in Austin, it was like immediately a thousand times worse the second that I got to Iowa, you know? Yeah. It just seems like um, smaller. Yeah. Like you're under more of a magnifying glass. And it yeah. also feels... I don't know why I think that one program reads as more like kind of just like kind of bitchy and competitive than the other. (laughs) But like if that's like my I don't know what where that's coming from, but that's like sort of my understanding is that like it's a little more cutthroat or whatever there. Like there's like the social world is a little crueler. It felt that way to me. But like also I would hasten to add like with me as the participant in that. You know what I mean? Like. I, I'm a super competitive person and you put me there and I'm just like, I'm the big fish and I'm going to eat you. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's so, so I don't know. I kind of suspect that other people go there and they have like a really nice time and they, they make friendships that last them for the rest of their careers. And they just, you know, find a lot of encouragement and bon you know, and, um, and that's great. And I did find those things. Sure. To some extent and eventually, but definitely for like the first year that I was there, at least in my head, it was just like nonstop savagery all the time. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awful. It's awful to think about. I was just there to give a reading and just walking around Iowa city and feeling like being around these reminders of how like, how brutal I was on like myself and how anxious I was and how judgmental I was of everybody else. And just like this constant roiling, painful mm-hmm. mess of stuff to try to enclose. And then to have to go up to somebody and have them say like, Hey, how are you doing? And have to like come up with a convincingly human response to that. And like the great pressure yeah, to fuck. be like, sound like just a normal human is really yeah when like in fact you're in an instapot yeah exactly yeah Yeah. (laughs) like oh man and so obviously that um 
you know, th- that there's that element of the experience. And I, I genuinely am curious if that's how other people experience it or, you know. Yeah, I have no idea where my perception of it as like a highly competitive place comes from. Like literally none. I don't think I, I maybe um, uh, once did poppers in an SUV with this Mormon guy who went there. Uh-huh. But like I've never really known anybody that went there. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely had eras of being really like, you know, eat or be eaten. Um, And its structure in terms of financial aid and support has never really been totally even. Mm. And it's a lot more evened out now than it used to be. But it, it used to be really stark, the difference between who gets like a this kind of fellowship support and who doesn't get any fellowship support or like any, you know, assistance or anything. And I think that's probably what creates that lingering sense because for a long time, people would go there with sort of obvious difference to confront about how, you know, one person in your class has their way paid entirely and another person is paying out of pocket to go there right you know and right now um it really is like a lot better than that but it's not it doesn't it i don't think you can really get rid of that necessarily yeah you know like the way it was when i was there anyway like everyone got funding but some people their funding consisted of like teaching rhetoric early mornings to undergrads like monday wednesday friday and other people had like, you know, a fellowship where they didn't have to do anything. We're just doing their art. Or just whatever. doing their art. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think that that just sort of remains in the place. And I think it's part of the place. Yeah. It's and it's actually kind of charming in a way. There's something kind of charming about it to me that like it gives you a lot to chew over it's like living in a little soap opera you know what i mean it gives you a lot to feel operatically about um and to feel injustice and like i mean it's just really fun yeah it's just really fun and and um how how kind of iowa to like give everyone this place to sort of freak out yeah yeah for sure yeah how long is that program that program is two years. Two long. years. So then you get done there and, and then you come back here? Mm. I did the two-year program and then I got one of the fellowships to teach for a third year. Nice. Yeah. And that's when I started writing Mary Lou's Everywhere. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, I didn't start on it until around Thanksgiving. Most of the time before that, I was just spending not writing and feeling horrible about not writing. Yeah. Were you is, still drinking? No. Not at that point. I quit drinking halfway through my second fall semester there. Right. Really unfortunate for the students in my class at the time. Yeah. Because, yeah, I thought like, well, now I'm going to be a much better teacher. Like overnight, I'll just be this much better teacher just since I'm not drinking. When it turns out that like, I'm just way more palpably insane, you know? For like sure. now that I, I I don't have this one limiter anymore, um, I have no idea what that was like for them. It must have been <laughs> <laughs> something else, or maybe it was totally fine and they had yeah, no idea. Maybe but you know? also like there's some things like that where it's like 
there's uh not to like um uh like kind of lighten the the load that uh that's not what i mean uh <laughs> i don't i don't want to make light of the um there's always going to be collateral damage <laughs> you know what i mean and i was trying to think of a way to like talk about how i I think the military still sucks, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, I don't want to use the phrase collateral damage and, like, take away what that actually means, which is murdering innocent yeah. human beings. Yeah. Uh, but, like, in a sort of sim symbolic or metaphorical sense, like, all of our lives, there's going to be wreckage that we leave in our wake. Yeah. And, like, if some of that is half a semester for some undergrads for you, then, like... It's okay. Fucking so be it. You yeah. know what I mean? Totally. Totally. And, and, you know, you never know what your presence in someone else's life is doing for them. And, yeah. Um, there are definitely some people who have been like amazing presences in my life at times that I don't think were that easy for them or comfortable. And, sure. you know, like, I don't know if they would imagine to see it the way that I see it. Yeah, so absolutely. That's like maybe <laughs> a little bit hopeful for me to say that. But I also think it was a good class. They were amazing students, which helped out a lot. But anyway. Um, How long were you writing Mary Lou? Uh, it's So I started around Thanksgiving of that year, which I guess was like 2014. Mm -hmm. And I sold it two summers ago. So... The answer to that question depends on when you would say I was done writing it because sure. I did all of these edits, you know, and like revisions yeah. with my editor over the last like two years, which I would kind of include in the process, basically five years ish. Right. So you yeah. spent two years writing it before you sold it. Yeah. Essentially. And then you spent another two years editing it and like doing rewrites and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. I'm always so shocked. Like. I was reading that um, like Judith Butler takedown of Barry Weiss today, mm -hmm. and um, it was like Barry Weiss wrote this book in a year, and I always, and someone else I was just reading wrote a book in a year, maybe Andrea Longchu, mm -hmm. um, or like you know according to whatever I promotional materials I yeah, read, yeah, they wrote yeah. the book in a year, and I'm just kind of like, who can fucking do that? Like it took me two and a half years to write the slice harvester book which like is not that good and that still took me two and a half years if you really want to flip out read a nell zinc interview because she has written her books in like a month fuck that i know i don't want to flip out i don't want to read that interview i mean i kind of love it yeah i know i like picking the scabs it. or whatever I love it just because I like the feeling of possibility and I like the feeling of like, if this person can do this, I can do this. Well, mm. which is not necessarily to say that I'm interested in writing a book in a month, but I like the idea of freeness that comes with that. Yeah. You know, um, I don't always... know her books. Is it like some towel in bullshit? Uh, that... No, it's not. It's man. It's, it's really hard to describe. Also, they're pretty different from sure. book to book that I've read so far anyway. But like um, the first one is called The Wall Creeper and it's like a sort of novella length, simply a shorter novel. And it's like there's just this like sort of mobility on the part of the plot to go anywhere. Okay. That I love. And I think yeah. that you get that out of. The writing brevity with the, the yeah, yeah something about that like the velocity of the process right um it's sort of 
seems to me like she's trusting something as she goes to make it work out like that. Yeah. You know? And so I really love that. But um, yeah, I don't know. It also makes me sort of itch with jealousy. So what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I have, I have people in my life like that where I'm like, uh, who's uh, like, I have a friend who writes in, like six to eight hour chunks of actual writing. Yeah. And for a long time, he was the only person I talked about writing with. And so I thought I was doing something wrong. Oh. Cause I don't yeah. just like rent a studio, leave my apartment at midnight to go play drums in a junkyard and then write from, uh, you know, 2 a.m. till uh, 8 a.m. every day yeah. and sleep during the day. Like, I was like, yeah. that's the only way to be a writer. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no, actually, like, I made more friends. And they people write all kinds of ways. Yes. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I do like comparing myself to stuff that I'm not going to do and feeling bad about it. It's like <laughs> something, there's something, what did I use the phrase exquisite torment before? Yeah. There's definitely something yeah. that feels like, um, scratching an inch that you know is going to bleed about that where like it feels good while it's happening even though I know it's going to hurt in the long run yeah yeah I I find like well just at least for me writing a novel has completely changed my willingness to write stuff that is bad that like it's just like badly written it's just bad I think I had a very low tolerance for writing anything, putting anything down on paper that I would mm. be like, I think this is like not thoughtful, lazy, like it's not said in a concise way. It doesn't yeah. feel right. It doesn't feel good. It feels kind of stupid and dumb. And I just got like a much greater tolerance for that from working on the novel because I just had to do that all the time for it to exist at all yeah you just have to push through so much garbage to get to the good stuff totally and i feel like i had just been watching lots of people at iowa sort of sit around and torture themselves not writing Mm -hmm. and wanting to write but not like giving themselves lots of ways to have an excuse to not make the mistake of like i need to do more research or You know what I mean? Like all of the ways that you can just not, you can find a lot of ways to not do it. And I just thought like, I just don't want to do that. I just don't want to like end up one of my friends um, who lives here now, actually, and who, who went to Iowa for fiction a few years before I did told me like, you know, a lot of the most talented people in my class don't have books out because they didn't write books. You right. know, like, don't don't let this happen to you, basically. Like, yeah. And this is a real possibility. There are a lot of people who who they just don't write the book. Right. So don't be that person. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's so painful to write something that seems like it's bad at the moment. And it's nearly impossible sometimes. Yeah. To just like to let that happen. Yeah. But it's like. The things that I'll do that aren't that are not helping me do good writing either. Yeah. You know, like I've been staving off the desire to reorganize that bookshelf right uh-huh. there. It's like you can see it's a fucking mess. 
um, every time I sit down to write. Yeah. And I've like been successfully not doing it. Yeah. Um, but it's like, if I did sit down to write and was like, I'm not going to write, I'm not feeling like I'm going to get anything good today. I may as well just go reorganize this bookshelf. That was not help me get good writing later. No. Whereas writing through the bad stuff, I feel like does help. Yeah. Kinda, like it's like flexing your muscles. It's doing like a little, it's like doing push-ups or something. Yeah. I kind of, my theory about it is like pretty wacky, but. Oh, I like wacky. Yeah. All right. Well, you're going to love this um, because I think that it's, it's almost more of just like a sacrifice of time to some entity outside of myself that is going to later show me what needs to be written down, you know, like, um, because I do think that it helps, it helps, like, I think that there is just something you can be practiced up as a writer. And you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's true. That's definitely a thing. But I also think that Every time I've written something where I felt like it was a real struggle to get the words down, the way it looks later is so different that I almost feel like it's been rearranged by some like kindly divine presence. Uh You know what I mean? And so it almost feels to me like I'm just engaging in the transaction with that thing where I'm saying like, look, I'm willing to sit here and I'm willing to not know and I'm willing to seem like an idiot to myself. And I'm willing to do this day after day after day with the faith that when I look at this later, I'll see something that wasn't there before. And so that's kind of how I see it, and which makes it a little bit easier to, to engage. You know, it Whoa. makes it a little bit more fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Try it. It's really, it's like, yeah, it's yeah, a different, no, that's yeah. how I used to, I, yeah, I'll, we don't need to talk about it, all this in the interview. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, cool. That seems like a good place to maybe call it. I'm going to include yeah. some links to articles about your book since we Great. didn't talk about it because I want people to read about it because I loved it. Thank you. Um, but I feel like the we're here to talk more about process than mm-hmm. about um, product. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll include a thing about your teaching do you want to talk about that for a second yes, though to do a little i do a yeah mini advert thank you yeah a little layup yeah um so basically because of this thing i've just described my discovery of how if i just spend the time putting words down and doing that day after day that i have this experience of like seeing something sort of transform itself there when i read it later i've done that twice now I have a second novel that I've written that way. And so, and that I had that same experience, the whole thing. Right. Sitting down, writing, feeling awful, feeling stupid, feeling like this is the worst thing I've ever done. Like the whole experience was the same. Yeah. The process worked the same. The result was a book that I could not have imagined writing that I'm so in love with. Hell yeah. It's so exciting and strange. Yeah. And so I basically made this program for other people to try it my way. Um, And it's called Here Be Monsters because of the like the way on medieval maps that any unknown territory, you just put like a huge octopus or something to (laughs) designate that like we don't know what happens here, but we think it's probably bad and you should stay away. yeah. Yeah, because that's sort of like the equivalent to me of writing this way is to be willing to go into 
the sort of sludgy, uncertain darkness. Yeah. And to be willing to discover whatever is there because it's usually really rich. It's usually because it's something hidden. There's usually some really compelling reason for that. Um, yeah. And so what it is really is just like a series of 90 emails that have some of them are little craft talks and some of them are not exactly writing prompts, but just like a perspective to begin writing from mm-hmm. um, or a series of questions, just like anything that's sort of a little push in the direction of doing the unlikely thing of sitting down and writing when you really, really don't want to do it. Yeah. And so you get one of these emails from me every day and you get them for 90 days, which is enough time to write a first draft of something, at least in terms of the number of words in your document, you know, Sure. which is the only, that's like my only definition for the first draft to be like a novel is to be the length of a novel. Right. Yeah. Um, and a few people are sort of trying it, like demoing it right now, which is really exciting. And then every now and then I also do like a Q and a call with the participants so people can ask questions or just, you know, like bring up whatever's coming up for them. Yeah. Um, although it's interesting, like, I feel like the questions often tend to be like, this feels so bad and horrible. Am I doing it wrong? And the answer is just no. Yeah, it just feels bad. It just, it feels like that, but you're doing great. Um, So yeah, that is the first of my forays into teaching this stuff. Because to me, like, you can get a lot of books on writing, like how to write a character, how to write a scene. Yep. And there are a million places where you can learn that, that are totally great resources. But how do you sit down and actually do this thing you want to do? It's really hard. And it's not something that is part of school usually. So I'm sort of interested in teaching those things because those things seem like they're at least as important as school and maybe a little more important than school stuff. Sure. Um, And so the next one, I'm working on one right now about revision. Because obviously, if you take my path, you need... To be so really good revision. at revision, yeah. yeah, because you've basically given yourself like like a bog to revise, you yeah. know. Um, but revision is also a really interesting process of seeing what you've made, like right. seeing what's actually there. Um, so that's what I'm working on now is actually making that class. Thank you to Bo Diddley for writing this song, Can't Judge a Book by Its Cover. Um, it's great. Bo Diddley's great. Listen to more Bo Diddley. Uh, he's got a great name. It's really fun to say, Bo Diddley. He's got a great album called Bo Diddley. Uh, the opening track on it is called Bo Diddley. Uh, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley. That's the artist name, the album name, and the song name. Um, 
And, well, it wouldn't be in that order. It would be Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley, which would be the song name, the album name, and the artist name. Uh, but you know what I mean. And um, yeah, he's great, whatever. Um, the, thank you to you for listening to me sing terribly over a good song. Um, thank you to Lakara Occulta, the band that did the theme song. Always go to Maddie's Bookstore, Book Row. Thank you to my guest, Sarah Smith, not just for being on the show, but also for writing the novel Mary Lou is Everywhere. Um, it's so good. And I encourage everybody that is listening to read it because it's great. It's a really great novel. It is um, a nice like uh, feminist take on a kind of salacious crime genre that is oftentimes pretty hateful towards women. Uh, but I think um, many people of all genders really enjoy and dislike the fact that uh, it's uh, a terrible thing for women. And so this is a nice solution to that. Also, it's beautifully written. So go pick that up. Buy it from the local bookstore or like uh, order it from Powell's or something. And that's the end of my thank yous. So um, if you've listened this far, you got no excuse to not go uh, give me a five-star review somewhere. It's for the sake of um, my well-being. I need clicks. I need likes. I need engagement. I need the algorithm to tell me that I'm worth something. Um, and you got to do your part. Uh, yeah, and that's, uh, that's it. That's all we got. No cops, no creeps, no borders. Fuck ICE. Free Palestine. Uh, I'm out. <laughs>